Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. WFAN, WFAN-FM, New York. Good morning, everybody. What a weekend, huh? Ay, ay, ay. Hmm. Hopefully, you are doing well. Thank you for joining us on our program today. Let me mention right at the top of the show, because some of the people who uh, listen to this show on a regular basis may think that um, our focus today is going to be on this uh, latest incident or incidents, incidences of uh, terrorism in uh, England. Um, we're not going that route uh, today um, for a number of reasons. Um Largely, I'll be very honest with you, because I'm very, very personally very angry over uh, what took place in uh, England and outraged by it. Um, And unfortunately, this seems to be the way things are going in terms of uh, the approaches taken by those who are perpetrating acts like this, um, it's very difficult for those of us who live in what I'm going to refer to as civilized society to actually come to grips with what took place in England uh, yesterday and also a couple of weeks ago. Um, And of course, then we also have to think the thing that nobody likes to talk about but which we're realistically always on guard for. And that's the possibility that actions along these lines could happen on these shores and specifically in this city or this greater New York metropolitan area. And again, something no one likes to think about. Um, Hopefully it does not occur But as is being said by a lot of folks today, including those in authority, be smart, be aware of your surroundings. And it is said an awful lot, but now I think it's becoming blatantly true. If you see something that's unusual, out of the ordinary. Say something about it. 
Anyway, let me get off my soapbox. I did want to address that. Um, the first hour of our program, I'm very, very pleased to present the guest who is joining us on our program. He has quite a distinguished background. Dr. Michael Lockshin is joining us on a program. Uh, among his accomplishments, he's the author of The Prince at the Ruined Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. He's a professor of medicine and obstetrics gynecology at Weill Cornell Medic- uh, Medicine, as well as director of the Barbara Volker Center at the Hospital for Special Surgery here in the city. And he's joining us on uh, this hour of our program uh, Dr. Lakshan, it's nice to have you join us. Good morning. Welcome. Oh, it's good to be with you. Thank you. In beginning this discussion, there's so many areas where potentially we can go, but I'd like to get your thought on that term that I used in introducing you, those two words, chronic illness. We hear them used a lot. When we say chronic illness, what does that mean to you? Well, there are a couple of ways of looking at it. Uh, in the most specific sense, chronic and acute just refer to time phrase, uh, phases. And acute is something that happens very instantly and generally has a relatively short duration. Chronic occurs over a much slower time frame and uh, often does not. The other way of, of thinking of chronic illness is that it's the type of illness that doesn't have a specific cure or a specific endpoint. It's something that once it comes is likely to stay with you. In, a, in an earlier generation, people used to talk about having a sickness and having a condition. So if you, if you go back to grand, your grandparents or your great-grandparents, this is a condition. It's something that at the moment, in 2017, we don't have a specific cure for, but we manage rather than uh, 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 give a, say, do a specific surgery or give a specific medication and get rid of it. How much time is devoted in medical school to the study of chronic illness? Well, that's changing, and actually, it's part of the reason I, I wrote the uh, the book uh, because I was giving a course that was trying to introduce the concept of chronic illness to medical students. When I went to medical school, almost everything was uh, uh, about acute illnesses and things that led to hospitalizations uh, and uh, either death or or cure. Uh, we were taught very little about managing people over not only years but decades uh, uh, when I was in medical school and I would like to think that medical students today are learning more about that aspect than than they did in my day. And when you talk about the types of chronic illness are more I guess are more forms of chronic illness being discovered, or are we just, um, has medicine gotten better at Oh, it's much closer to the to the latter. Uh, and one of the things is that many things that 
killed people when I was younger uh, now don't kill people but are managed. I mean, the pe- things that people know most about are, would be hypertension, high blood pressure, and, and diabetes. But for instance, when I started out, the de- disease that I deal with a lot, which is lupus, uh, or formerly known as systemic lupus erythematosus, killed people, killed about half of the patients in under three years. And now it's really rare for us to lose a patient, but I uh, now know patients that I've known for 20, 30 years uh, who are living with the illness. That's the sort of thing that uh, I think has happened more uh, before my generation Actually, uh, say before World War II, uh, there were no antibiotics, so people would die of pneumonia. Uh, if the appendix ruptured, it, they would often die. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So uh, it's more that people have survived to the point that they can now live with the illness as opposed to dying of it. And when we talk about living with the illness, does that living with it have to include medication? Depends on on what the problem is. Uh, let's say in my field, in my I treat rheumatic diseases, auto, autoimmune rheumatic diseases, types of arthritis, and maybe half of my patients can be managed without medications. Uh, we talk about when you talk about chronic illness, you talk about illnesses that come and go, and we use the terms remissions and, and exacerbations or flare-ups. So there, maybe half will go into remission that they need no medications, and the other half will not. But the medication levels will vary. It isn't that they take the same thing every day. If they'll go a few months on medications, a few months off medications, uh, that sort of thing. Do you have a lot of patients these days who want to take an approach that is not based heavily in medication? Uh, yeah, I guess yeah, trying to figure out what you were referring to, there are two ways I looked at it. Number one is uh, using alternative medications or herb, various herbal things, various Asian uh, uh, regimens, that, that sort of thing, uh, lifestyle issues. The other, uh, the other way of interpreting what you asked is uh, the folks who go on the internet and come up with all sorts of uh, things that wouldn't be counted as uh, standard types of approaches by other cultures, but are just something they've found and are convinced is is responsible for the illness. Whatever that is, that's a daily part of my daily diet when I deal with chronic illness because. Somebody who is stuck with an abnormality that they really can't, they don't want to be part of their lives, will always look for alternative ways of of stopping it. And uh, by and large, I think physicians like me have to deal with these types of patients uh, become quite open to listening to the alternatives because I guess, again, one of the big points of my book is that 2017 isn't the end of science. We don't know everything. Uh, In fact, you could even argue we don't know very much at all. And so any idea that is uh, 
not dangerous to me uh, is welcome. And it doesn't necessarily mean I will advise a patient to take uh, one direction or another that he or she has uh, asked for, but it doesn't mean that I will reject it out of hand either. It's something that we can talk about. I can uh, tell them what I know. I can look up something if I've never heard of it before, uh, and we can negotiate that process. And that again is a big part of what what my book is about: is is being open to new ideas and being open to uh, negotiating with the patients as opposed to dictating to them. What about the situation where so much of medicine seems to be surrounded, and you talk about this, surrounded by this idea of these various codes? How is that influencing things? Well, uh, that again, I mean, you ask about why I wrote the book. Uh, what you're referring to is what we call ICD codes. ICD stands for International Classification of Diseases. This is a system which was set up so that countries compare, can compare illnesses and experiences, but it was, in my mind, perverted by, largely by insurers and others to be the requirement that a physician submit to have a test approved, to have a medication approved, to submit a bill for anything. Uh, in the billing systems rather than the doctors so you have set up so that you, if you don't use a specific ICD code, you can't get a CT scan or an MRI scan or something because the insurer doesn't improve it, uh, approve it. And a good part of what I wrote about is the fact that in my world, at least in the world of chronic illness, the level of certainty that these codes uh, imply just doesn't exist. Uh, we have lots of people who fit in between diagnoses, they, or they don't have enough criteria to be certain about a diagnosis, or they have illnesses that seem to be two things simultaneously. The codes don't allow for that, and so the fact that we have to use these codes in virtually everything, every office visit I have to sign out with codes, every time I write a prescription I have to use these codes, every time I write a requisition for laboratory tests I have to write these codes, uh, it, they're creating what are essentially false charts. Just I, I wouldn't say complete lies, but they're not complete truths either because you have doctors learn to use the codes to assure that the test or the medication uh, will be uh, provided and uh, they don't use them to write an honest description of a patient. Dr. Michael Lakshin talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning and we're going to chat more with him as we continue right here at WFAN. Bob Salter on Sports Radio 66 I tell you, they get fired up on Sunday mornings, those WFAN jingle singers. And good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We are in discussion with Dr. Michael Lockshin on our program and talking with him about this uh, topic of chronic illness. We'll get into talking a little bit more about the uh, book as well in our discussion. The opinion that you've shared with us on um, these codes being used in uh, medicine today 
I'm curious about a couple of things, and I'll mention the fact that if folks who are listening to us want to join us in our discussion, you can at any point. Um, WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666. But is your opinion shared by your colleagues or a lot of your colleagues in medicine? <laughs> you see, I, I'm laughing because... Uh, that's a oh boy is it uh, type <laughs> answer. Uh, one of the things I mean, I I agree. We're in the 21st century. It's appropriate to use electronic charting, uh, and we all now have various forms of electronic charts. Uh, but if you look in medical journals right now, uh, there are a number of papers written about the chaos of of electronic charting, and a great deal of that is based on the fact that we have to uh, give very precise yes-no answers to everything. Uh, you know the way computers work. They don't, they don't give gray zones between your answers. So uh, oftentimes we'll have thoughts like I was telling you before, where something isn't quite so certain, where you're... A diagnosis I would often use would be rule out something. That is, I'm looking to see, I think something may be happening and I want to check it, so I want to do some additional tests. Uh, you can't put down rule out on the computerized chart with the code. There is no code for rule out. Uh, you have to establish, you have to write down, this is the diagnosis, and then uh, do the test. And, and physicians like me will sit and scream at the computers and bang their <laughs> fists into the walls when we, when we have to do this sort of thing. <laughs> well, I guess the question is, is anybody listening? I would hope so. And again, one of the reasons why I wrote this book, the book is in part and I guess mostly uh, aimed at people who are dealing with chronic illness and don't understand the complexities of it. This is the patients. But it was also meant in Part of the reason I wrote it was as I was teaching medical students, I understood that they didn't understand it as well. But above all, what I would like to do, and I'm not alone in this at all, is get the attention of the administrators, the in insurers, the third-party payers who are putting these demands on medicine. And I understand they do it because it makes their jobs easier, but... I think it's making medicine much more dishonest than it's ever been in, in in my lifetime, certainly. And I would really, really want to have their attention uh, brought to this issue. What was it like for you doing this book? I mentioned the title before, The Prince at the uh, Ruined Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. And why that title? Well, okay, I'll go to the title first. And there's a certain degree of pomposity in that. But when when I was in college, uh, I didn't have a standard pre-med course. I uh, was in a in a field called history and literature, and I I came across a line. It's in a T.S. Eliot poem uh, in the Wasteland, but it was a line in French from a French poem that I had read in a, in, a, in a different course. And it was a very sonorous line. It had a, uh, a lot of feel to it, but I had no idea what it meant. And I don't mean translated. I don't, uh, 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 the translation was simple. It was the Prince of Akaten at the Ruined Tower. 
but the line didn't seem to make sense either in the French poem or the uh, uh, citation that T.S. Eliot used. I didn't think about that except that it would recur in my life over over uh, periodically. Then I read a, um, a story about that because I, I Googled it one day just to figure out. Uh, and the person who wrote the critique said, uh, the, there was no sense in trying to understand the meaning of the line. It was the music and the words that was important, what you would hear in it. And in French, French is a sort of sing-song language, and if you listen to it in French, you heard a different music. And he said that was the main point of it. Well, that's a long way of introducing the fact that when I, about that same time, I was talking to a patient, and what was obvious to me when I was speaking to her is that her body language, the way she looked, the ter- words she used were different from what I was seeing, the way she was uh, behaving in, in the office. And so I turned around and, and, and said right out, are you lying to me now? And she looked at me and she said, yes. Uh, and the, what was happening was that I was reading the music in her words and seeing something very different. And it turned out not to be so awful or so strange. She was. It turned out that she was absolutely terrified where the conversation was going and thought I was going to give her an absolutely horrible prognosis that was not correct and and. Uh, uh, she was misreading me in the same way that I was misreading her. So the title of the book ended up being about reading those messages and being able to communicate with patients uh, back back and forth, that I should be able to see something more than I'm hearing, uh, and I should be I should ask the patient to turn back to me, and if I'm not being clear, if I'm giving messages that uh, are adverse to what the patient is thinking, I want the patient to feel free enough to ask me about it and ask me to interpret, and then we can work together to a solution rather than being on different sides of uh, of the coin. What about this idea that so many patients will say, they get intimidated when that doctor walks in the room. That's a large part of why I wrote this book again. The And to focus on the concept of certainty and uncertainty, something like a fracture, appendicitis, those are fairly certain things, and they're acute illness, they're acute uh, illnesses or events, uh, they have a beginning and a, and a middle and, a, and an end. But in the, in the chronic illnesses that generally uh, is not so. And what I, what I want to do and what I've, I've stated in the book is that those things that we know a great deal about, certain types of infections need certain types of antibiotics, for instance, there it's fair enough for the doctor to be relatively uh, demanding, saying, you really have to do this. But on the other side, when the information is much less, where we're just exploring and making guesses about where this is going to go or what this particular finding means, the more uncertainty there is on that side, from my point of view, the more the patient's priorities uh, should rule rather than than the doctor's. So I can suggest on the basis of uh, 
my experience, uh, what I've studied, what I've seen over years, uh, this might be the best way to go. But if the patient has a very different point of view, and I really don't know, I don't have a great deal of certainty about where this is going, I really want to hear the patient's point of view, and then we'll negotiate those priorities. And so to come back to the question that you just asked, I would like to empower the patients to ask their doctors to negotiate the uncertain parts. Uh, and uh, I would hope that the doctors on their turn would be open enough to uh, uh, accept that uh, listing of two patients' priorities. Okay. Leads us perfectly to an area that you've mentioned a couple of times in our discussion. This always comes up. We're talking with Dr. Michael Lockshin on our program on the fan this Sunday morning and talking with him in a broad sense about this topic of uh, chronic illness. I've mentioned the fact that uh, Dr. Lakshan is the author of The Prince at the Ruined Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. Uh, he is a, a professor of medicine and obstetrics gynecology at Weill Cornell Medicine, as well as director of the Barbara Volker Center at the Hospital for Special Surgery here in the city. And um, he's sharing with us in this hour of our program. You want to join us in our discussion, you can at 877-337-6666. Or those of you who are on Facebook, a lot of people hit up uh, radio legend Bob Salter. You can go through and submit your question there if you want to. One of the thoughts I had with this idea of, you know, you're talking about negotiating with patients. What has been the impact of the Internet? And uh, a lot. Uh, I think maybe three quarters of my patients are very literate in in the internet, uh, and it's very common <clears throat> for patients to come in with lists of things they've printed out, uh, uh, ideas they've come up. Sometimes they've made their own diagnoses on the basis of that. Sometimes that's right. Sometimes that's wrong. They very often will come in largely from social media more than from things directly on the uh, Internet with ideas about how something should be treated. Uh, From my point of view, uh, I'm open to that. I mean, sometimes... To be honest, I want to slap my hand to my forehead and say, this is the craziest thing (laughs) I've ever heard, but I hope I keep a fairly straight face as I I listen to this and explain uh, why I think this is a good idea or why it's not. Uh, One of the things that often comes up is that the Internet is pretty poor at telling you dangers uh, of things that they recommend, Uh, and so I spend a lot of time sort of walking through, yes, well, that may be so, but have you thought of what will happen if uh, that sort of thing. Now, the way medicine is constructed today doesn't give a lot of time for that. Uh, I've had a lot of email exchanges sort of going over that. I I don't mind doing that when patients bring it up. But that's part of the negotiation as well. I think if if physicians listen to patients when they bring those things up, uh, then the relationship becomes much better and much more trusting. Dr. Michael Lockshin is our guest on our program on the fan this Sunday morning, this hour of our program, and is talking with us about this topic of a chronic illness, which we've explored a couple of times on this show. We've also had some interesting input from some of the folks listening to us. You want to join us in our discussion, you can at any point, too, at 877-337-6666. 
Dr. Lakshin is a professor of medicine and obstetrics gynecology at Weill Cornell Medicine, as well as director of the Barbara Volker Center at the Hospital for Special Surgery here in the city. And he's the author of The Prince at the Ruined Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. And he is going to talk with us as we continue in our discussion this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Dr. Michael Lakshin on our program. As I've mentioned, Dr. Lakshin is the author of The Prince at the Ruined Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. He's talking with us about this topic of chronic illness. Uh, Also in his background, he's a professor of medicine and obstetrics gynecology at Weill Cornell Medicine as well as director of the Barbara Volker Center at the Hospital for Special Surgery in the city. By the way, what is that center? The, the Barbara Volker Center? Yes. Uh, it, 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 it's a rheumatology center, and it's uh, named for uh, Barbara Volker, who is a patient of mine who uh, had uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but also was very much concerned in the issues of how uh, illnesses affect women in particular. The autoimmune diseases in general, which is what I deal with, uh, affect women much more than they do men. And so the center focuses on the specific aspects of autoimmune diseases and a great deal of emphasis on uh, women, for instance, uh, pregnancy issues uh, are a good part of uh, what we do and you know, trying to figure out why uh, illnesses affect one sex or the other is another part of what we do. Is there anything that points up exactly why it is that autoimmune diseases affect women more than men? It, it, the briefest answer to that is that we don't know that answer right now. Uh, what I can tell you is that what was thought you know, in the well, end of the last century uh, and uh, even even more recently uh, it was that it was the hormone differences in hormones. We're pretty sure right now that it is not the hormones, but more likely something to do with the specific chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes that make people one sex more susceptible than than another. But basically, that's a major topic of research right now without a clear answer. And is that research primarily in this country? No, it's all over. I would point out, by the way, that we have not excluded at all the fact that it's environmental. I mean, it's somewhat of a joke, but uh, years not not so long ago, a few years ago, someone actually wrote a paper called Does Lipstick Cause Lupus? arguing that uh, chemicals in cosmetics could be part of the reason. But men and women and boys and girls have very different experiences and very different environmental exposures and those are still very possible as uh, potential reasons for the sex differences. But most of the science is focusing really on the X and Y chromosomes right now. We have never really talked much about the topic of um, lupus on this program. I think maybe once in all the years that I've done that. How... Um, I wanted to use a simplistic question, but I feel strange in asking it, but I'll phrase it anyway this way. In terms of the severity of lupus, how serious does it get? Well, 
I'll state something I said a little bit ago. But when I started out, uh, there was 50% mortality in uh, under five years, and now it mortality is is. I mean, we're we still lose patients from lupus, but we're really surprised if that happens because uh, we should be able to allow people to live normal lives. We should live allow. We should be able to allow people to live out their lives. I started to say normal lives, but that's not fair to say. Uh, there, there are constant uh, back and forth with physicians, medications, complications of medications, uh, hospitalization. So it isn't a normal life, but the uh, and and what we're looking forward to is a day when life can be completely normal. One of the things, and one of the reasons why I got into the field that I'm in, for instance, was when I started out, the one of the, and this is before Roe v. Wade, one of the very few allowances for abortion before Roe v. Wade uh, was lupus because it was said that pregnancy would routinely cause uh, it would kill patients who had lupus uh, and so it was a reason that you could legally terminate a pregnancy uh, in that time uh, what happened is and it was turned out to be a medical student uh, who had lupus who challenged me to prove to her that it was uh, that she should never have children and that got me into the looking into what the data were that actually supported that statement. And it turned out it wasn't that strong. And we ended up doing studies in, in pregnancy and lupus. Well, now it's routine that we not only don't advise against pregnancy, uh, we encourage pregnancies. And we've you know, been part of studies right now that show that for most patients, uh, pregnancies are very uh, feasible, uh, and we now have a big pregnancy clinic as a result of of that. And it doesn't mean that it's normal. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be closely monitored. But we've got lots of uh, uh, successes. In fact, yesterday uh, I was at a bar mitzvah of a child that was born of a patient of mine, uh, and that that is always a, a thrill for me. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, the prognosis has completely changed. We, we have gone from, will this patient survive now to, can we have this patient live a completely normal life? And we're not quite at that stage yet. Dr. Lakshin, how would you say or how do you say patients should respond when diagnoses, as you've talked about earlier, are uncertain. That's where the conversations come in, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's very hard. Uh, patients generally, and the news media uh, uh, bring this out to sort of say everything is obvious. Here's a diagnosis, uh, and this is what we're going to do. And that isn't the way the world actually operates. Uh, and so. Being able to have this conversation, the type of conversation you and I are having right now, the type of conversation I would like to have with my patients about what we know, what we don't know, uh, is an extraordinarily important part of medical care. And one of the ways in which we go about this is that uh, 
if if we understand that there are things that are uh, very clearly known about an illness, then we can act on that. But there are other parts that we are not uh, so certain about, and that's where uh, the patients who look at the Internet, the patients who uh, have their own ideas about what to do, that's where that becomes really important to uh, to have a conversation about. The other thing that's important is the difference between cause and process. Uh, I don't have to know the cause of an illness to understand the process by which it is going on. And we're much, much better at managing processes than we are at managing causes. So if I can say, well, I don't know precisely why this is happening, but here is how it is happening. And I do have medications for this part of the how and that part of the how. So it isn't not understanding everything that you can possibly know about an illness and not understanding its cause is not the same thing as not having an answer of what we can do. And so that's the way the conversation will go about, no, I don't know precisely why this is happening, but I do have something I can do for you, and here's what we will do. Uh, And that conversation is something that patients should have with their doctors. And how do you advise your students about how it is that they should talk to patients? Well, it's part of it is the same thing that I'm telling you, but I'll tell you that turned out to be a harder thing than I uh, thought. Uh, when I said I was teaching the students, this, this was a new course, and it was specifically dedicated to teaching about chronic illness, but I was talking to first- and second-year medical students And one of the things that I discovered, and I probably should have known this in advance, is that students don't want to be told that there are things that are uncertain. They want to be told, here's the problem, here's the answer. And so it became a a difficult conversation because the message, and I probably should have known this better as a professor, is that students... uh, have to have the basics down first before they can understand the the unknown parts of the basics. They can't start with the idea that nothing is known. Uh, they, they end up thinking nothing is known and this field is hopeless. Uh, and to be honest, I haven't mastered that yet. Uh, I know that I can't, it can't be the first thing that you say to students. Uh, they have to have a basis of knowledge before you can start introducing that. And the biggest problem for me as a teacher in medical school is the students are all in a group in the first and second years, and then they start rotating off into different disciplines. So by the time they're getting to the point where you can start talking to them about uh, things that are unknown, you're you're only talking to small sec- sections of the uh of the class and it's hard to get that message across to the entire group as the bottom line is i i haven't figured that out we're working with the curriculum committee and trying to figure out a way of of doing this but being certain that they do understand that they're not going to go into the world with all problems solved and, uh, and nothing further to explore mm. And what do you say to patients who 
may come to you after, you know, in some cases, I guess it could be months, maybe even years of frustration because the illness or disease that they have was misdiagnosed. Well, that that's um, that's difficult. I try to walk through. Uh, I try. I try not to be. Um, uh, uh, judgmental in in this. Uh, I go th- first of all, illnesses evolve slowly and they change over time. Uh, so I I try to make that clear about why uh, physicians would have looked at this and just made the wrong decisions. Uh, sometimes it's the fact that I'm there later and I see what didn't work. Uh, but trying to get this conversation going about. Uh, what's certain and what's uncertain is probably the best way of approaching that and trying to keep the conversation going in both directions so that patients are open to ask questions um, at the same time is that I can be free enough to answer them honestly uh, and sometimes that does end up in a conversation saying it was really a stupid mistake of your uh, doctor but most often it's uh, here's how they got into that trap uh, and here's how we're going to get out of it but again conversation negotiation rather than dictation now, let's go back to the book, because in introducing you, we have mentioned the fact that you had authored The Prince at the Ruin Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. What's your hope from the book? My hope, you start out with the ICD codes. So one hope is that people will realize that uh, not everything gets uh, that doctors do is uh, codable by an ICD code. Uh, but, but the other is to stimulate the conversations between doctors and, and patients and certainly to also get the message across to medical students uh, to be open to uncertainty, to think of uncertainty as an opportunity. Uh, when you don't know an answer, it gives you, it gives you an open enough mind to explore other possibilities. Uh, and I, if, to the extent that everybody in this uh, field, uh, the patients, the doctors, the medical students, the administrators understand this, then we can move forward much more f- rapidly than if we simply just took the idea that in 2017 we know everything there is to know and anything that doesn't fit is your mistake. The voice of Dr. Michael Lockshin, who is the author of The Prince at the Ruin Tower, Time, Uncertainty, and Chronic Illness. He's a professor of medicine and obstetrics gynecology at Weill Cornell Medicine, as well as director of the Barbara Volker Center at the Hospital for Special Surgery here in the city. He's been our guest this first hour of our program on The Fan this morning. Dr. Lakshin, thank you very much for being kind with your time and sharing the information. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you. It's been fun. And certainly good luck, too, with your book. Thank you. Interesting discussion starting us off on our program. We take a turn. We have a guest who is going to join us and take us into an area of discussion realistically where we've never gone before on this program. And in a way, that may have been a very big mistake on my part. You'll find out as we continue this Sunday morning.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.